0: Before we begin in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, uh, we will be uh, going over verses 5 through 7 tonight, today. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Holy Father, we come now in the name of our Savior, for there is no other name given unto heaven and earth that... Uh, that's ever said and spoken among men that that is provided to us that we can even claim any value at all and so in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us we come and ask that your spirit would be among us and that the truth be revealed to our hearts and may ears be bored open And may they even have nails put through them that we might become your servants forever. So, Father, we ask that these things be done for your namesake and for your glory. We pray, Lord, that your people be, be encouraged, but also for sinners to be saved. And we ask, Lord, that those people around this world that are now suffering for your name, That you would be with them. Give them grace. We ask these things for the uplifting of our Savior. And for your namesake only. And for your glory. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. We've been looking at the book of Hebrews now for some time. And I would say that the, uh, the main part of the book of Hebrews is that. The writer wants these Jewish Christians. To embrace Jesus Christ alone. I think that's fairly. To, it's fair to say this. And so in review. We looked at the verses. One through four last time. We, I, I was here speaking. And, and basically we looked at the idea. That the salvation that the Lord Jesus provides. Is, is perfect. And that it is complete. But while we are in the flesh. We are not going to have this Perfection but we have the promise of it we have been perfectly and completely justified by the atoning work of christ and our faith can rely upon that work but while we are here in the flesh in this present evil world the lord is sanctifying us and that's not just a religious word that sounds like we're doing some kind of a religious thing but sanctify means that god has set us aside from this world for a holy purpose he has set us aside we are a peculiar people, and that we will be set aside to be made like his own son. We are going to be conformed to the image of Christ, and then we will be glorified. And God has come, and he will come again. And when he comes again, we shall be glorified. And so the writer wants us to understand that there is a completeness in this salvation, that there is a perfection. And he stated so in the very first verse. And so let me just read that verse again to remind you of what he said. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered uh, every year make perfect those who draw near. And so we have in these words... The idea that the shadow points to what can make us perfect, and that is the work of Christ. And that Christ will come again to complete his work, to finish his work. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to preach that last sermon again, but I want to just add one more thing to that. I have in my life seen many times where I have started something and didn't complete it. Now, I know you haven't, but I have. Uh, Many times I have these projects that are left around, uh, but God does not do that. He finishes his work, and when he does his work and then looks at it and says, that was very good, you can rest your life on it. And so the doctrine that we're looking at today, in which we will be looking at verses, I believe just a few verses today, verses 5, 6, and 7, but the doctrine is more of a goal that we want to achieve. It's something that can be simply stated. And it is this. The work of the Lord Jesus is perfect and complete, but it's not done yet. But it will be done. It has been completed when it comes to justification. And He will also sanctify us and then glorify us. But the phrase that we read in one of these verses is this. And it implies this. So as the Lord came for us to die for us, so will our Lord come again and complete his work for the Father and deliver us from this present evil work, evil world. So let's go to these verses and go by them one by one so that we can make sure that we understand exactly what they mean. And then as we go along, we'll see if we can make some application to it. It has been my custom in the past to go over the verses and then go to practical applications. Today is not going to happen like that. Today, I'm going to try to throw in a few applications as we go along. So, this is an audible, okay? All right? You know what that means. If you're from England, you may not know. Okay? That's where the quarterback calls a play right from behind the center. And so, today, we have an audible. Today, we're going to take our applications as we go. Verses 5 and 6. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body have you prepared for me. In burden offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Well, here we have the writer quoting from Psalm 40. Now, if you went to Psalm 40, you would not find those exact words. Because the writer of this book is actually quoting from the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was used uh, in the uh, 3rd and 2nd centuries before Christ was born. And so, it was commonly used among Hellenistic Jews, which means Jews that speak Greek. And so, this is a direct quotation from that translation. And so, we have the rendering, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And so, what the writer is doing is that he's establishing proofs. He has made a statement, and now he's coming up with the evidence that will, in, uh, uh, will convince the Hebrew Christian, a statement concerning the work of Christ. And so let's move on with verse number 7, and then we'll get into some uh, applications, because we are going to go to Psalm 40. We're not just going to quote Psalm 40 and not go there. We're going to go to Psalm 40. So in Hebrews 7, we, we read these, which is another quotation from Psalm 40. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The writer, again, is reinforcing the idea that all that he has claimed to say concerning the finished work of Christ is true because of this evidence, but now he's going to reinforce it with the idea that it has been the Messiah who has said this. The Messiah is the one claiming these words. And therefore, it is he that will give clarification that God is not going to be happy with sacrifices of animals. But... God has prepared a body for him within the same phrase, which implies that this is the body that will please God. The sacrifice of this body is what's going to please God. And so the, God, so the writers reinforcing uh, the ceremonial shadows as being taken away. And so let's take another closer look at Psalm 40. So if you have your scriptures with you, please go to Psalm number 40. This is a Messianic psalm. It is written by David. Now, when we say a Messianic psalm, it's a psalm that actually predicts and has a prophetic feel to it concerning uh, the the Messiah. And it's written by David. And if you read the very first uh, line of this, it actually says that it's a a psalm written by David and that it has been uh, to be given to the choir master, which means it's to be sung in worship. Now, you'll also find that within a psalm that's written to be sung, it's in a form of a poem. And many times, a poem in the Hebrew sense will make a statement and then make the statement again and repeat it in just a slightly different way. And we'll have that many times in this particular psalm. It contains prophecies about Christ. It can only be true of Christ. And so as we work our way through, you're going to notice that there is an application Directly to David, because David is writing this from his perspective. David is saying, I am that man. But in a prophetic sense, there can be things here that can only be true of Christ. And therefore, the Holy Spirit has moved upon David to reveal who the Messiah is and what he's about to do. And that David is more or less been given the circumstance that the Holy Spirit wants to reveal Christ through him. Now, since this is about David, you will also find that it can be about you. You will find that yourself is in many times in the same circumstances as David. You may not have been hiding in a cave. You may not have had a lance thrown at you. You may not have had to fight Goliath. But you all have your own circumstances that can be applied and be, in some ways, very, very similar. So in studying for this, I looked through my... uh, my my go-to study, which is for the Psalms, uh, David's, I mean, uh, the Treasury of David by Spurgeon. And he had divided this up in four different sections, and I thought they were very good divisions. And so I kept those, but I didn't name them. We're looking at these verses 1 through 17. And so I put the first part that we're going to look at, uh, verses 1 through 3. And I have entitled this, Waiting on the Lord and Being Heard. And the second part, uh, verses 4 and 5 those who see and fear God will trust the works of God. And the last and then in the next section, verses six through 10, the Lord is determined to do the Father's will. And then the last sections 11 through 17, "The Lord depends only on the Father to deliver Him." And so without haste, I mean without delay, let's go ahead and, and get into this. Verse number one: "I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Now, you may say, well, surely that's just David. The Lord uh, doesn't need any more patience than what he has, right? The Lord is full of patience. But um, he didn't, wouldn't, wouldn't have to describe himself as being patient. But I'll, I'll put this. The Lord Jesus, our Savior is a man. He, was a, he came, and he says a body has been given to him. And we must understand that he did what we could not do, but he did as we should have. And so he was us. He has flesh and bone. And he is a man like us that need, needed to wait patiently many times. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a doctor's office. You wait in there, and of course you all waited very patiently, right? Your appointment's at 10 o'clock, and you didn't get called till 1230, and you patiently waited. I mean, obviously, you had a phone, you had TV, you had games and puzzles and this and that. And so sometimes you would even say, well, I, uh, I, I could have waited longer. I'm not even done with Jerry Springer on TV yet. And so he could wait. And so this is not the kind of patience we're looking at. Because the kind of patience that we're looking at can be seen from verse, uh, in the next verse where he says, he drew me up from the pit of destruction. This is the type of patience that says, while I'm in the pit of destruction and in a miry bog I patiently waited, and many of you now, like Christ and like David, have said, O oh Lord, how long do I need to wait? If I only had more pleasures to enjoy, I could wait longer. But instead we wait in the pit of destruction. Now the very name of that is not the pit of leisure. It is a place that cannot be endured because it will destroy. It is not a place where you can say, well, if I'm in the pit, at least I'll, I'll be strong there. No, it's not a place where you can stand. It is a miry place. It is a slippery place. It is a place where even your best efforts will have you on your face. And you cannot even stand in this pit. But, as the psalmist says in verse 2, He drew me up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He set me up. He pulled me out of that and set my feet on a rock. And what is this rock? What are we supposed to be standing on? Is it not the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ and his work and that God has done his work? And our Lord, his very purpose in this psalm is to say, I do your will. He does the will of his Father. And that is what we can stand upon. In verse number three, we read this. He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And here we say, well, what kind of song was it? Do we have that one in our hymnal? Are we able to sing that song? Do we make it up? Well, I think, I think he puts it right here. He says the song that he puts in his heart and in his mouth is the gospel because you see and then you fear and then you trust if that's not the outline of the gospel i just don't know what is because you see you have to see your fearful position before god you have to see the sin and the miry pit that you are in the place where your foot slides and it will slide in due time if it's not slid now it will slide there is a time when the wicked will fall and it will fall completely And utterly destroy them. And there is no recovery from this. And then you learn to fear God. You learn to fear. It is the word of God and his law and his righteousness that puts that fear in you. When you see and then you fear. And then when you understand, there is this place where you stand and you trust. You trust. They will put their trust in the Lord. Let's continue on to the next section. Verses 4 and 5, those who see and fear God will trust his works. That's what I've entitled it. And so verse number 4, we read this. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Can you see what the gospel has done? He's taken a man out of the fire, out of the pit. And it says, now where is he that he stands upon his rock? Well, now he's a blessed man. A blessed man who has made the Lord his trust. He saw, he feared, he trusted Who does not turn to the proud and those who go astray after a lie? So in other words, there's this contrast. He has gone to God and not to the proud man. Not to the man who has gone after a lie. He has gone after God in his humility. And this is what David sees in himself. But you may say, well, how how does the Lord fit into this? How is this a messianic psalm? If you can only imagine our Lord living his life in this world, shouldering our burdens, doing those things, looking for those things that please his father and doing all his works. And then before doing the work that pleases God, which is to save his people that he has given him, that he should bear their iniquities and die. When, now, you know, when we think of us dying, we only usually think about our bodies dying because it seems to us that, well, we, we're, my, my relationship to God is by faith. I, I really don't know him. But our Lord, our Lord when he died, had the Father turn his face away from him. Now that death to a dead person is not that big of a deal, but it is a big deal To Jesus Christ, who chose to die from his father for you. And so, he puts his trust in his father. When he was here, he trusted. Oh, he trusted. He trusted the way we should trust. Verse number five. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you, and I will proclaim and tell them. And uh, they are more than can be told. And I can tell you right now, I should have split this sermon in two parts. Uh, I should have. Maybe I'll just, you know, slice it off and continue with this next week. But I'll, I'll say this about this particular verse. How can we actually see all the mighty works of God. They are far more than we can comprehend. They have been multiplied upon multiplied upon multiplied. It is not as though God sees a problem and then he just kind of shoots out a lightning bolt and fixes that on the spot. He is not one of these, uh, like like in our job we have um, uh, Johnny-on-the-spot type of uh, reactions to Problems. And we have just-in-time inventory where we don't keep an inventory, but we see the need and we, we, we fix it right then. We wait until the need rises. That's what is now popular in many companies. But God is not that kind of a God where he says, well, well I'll see where the problems crop up and I'll do it as they, as they appear. That is not how he does things. From the very beginning, he's called the end. From the beginning. And he has abounded in grace Event upon event upon event upon event to find you in that pit and to pull you out and to stand you up on promises that cannot fail. Just small examples from the word of God. Remember when the gospel was discovered by the apostles that the Gentiles should also share, that the Gentiles should also be saved? They had a council as to how to handle this the Jerusalem council, shall they hear this? Shall we put this yoke upon them? And so on. And in verse 18 of chapter 15 in the book of Acts, we read these words. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Now, why did did James say that when he was making this Jerusalem council uh, decree that that they should go forth and and preach the gospel to the Gentile and not burden them with, with many things, but... That they should receive the gospel. Because he said this. God knew he was going to save these Gentiles at the very beginning. And who are we to deny it? This is how he thought. And this is the way we should think. There's another example from Nehemiah. That prophet. And it concerns Nineveh. And Nehemiah was explaining to them. Or expounding the greatness of God. And he said this in Nehemiah 1.3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now the King James says that he has his way in the whirlwind. But this particular rendering of this text I believe is superior. And that his way is in whirlwind. He brings about his will in a way that even looks as though it's nothing but confusion. But there is no confusion. His way is in whirlwind and in storm. When we see ourselves surrounded by confusion, God is not confused. God is not out of control. This is how he does it. He does it completely under his control. From our view, it's a whirlwind. But God does his work in the storm. We look up and see the clouds are merely just the dust of his feet. It's just a a metaphoric way of saying how powerful God is. And we also see the works of God in Christ. And if we should say, well, what are the wondrous works in the past? What has God done to abound toward us? Well, John made a statement at the end of his gospel with this in chapter 21, verse 25. Now, there are... Also, many other things that Jesus did. He's talking about the things that are not written in his gospel. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So many things that even our Lord did. And yet these things are the words, I mean, are the works of God. Um, From there, I feel, I feel pressed that I have, so much more I want to say. Uh, and so I'm not going to rush. I, I'm, I'm just not going to rush. And so we will continue the uh, the Psalm 40 next week. And I uh, I don't know. Previously in Psalm 40, that's what you're going to get from next week, I suppose. But I, I don't want to press, you know, rush ourselves here. But I would like to just take one more One more section. Shall we say just take one more verse. In this next section, part 3, verses 6 through 10, which we will not get all through these verses, but I would like to take some. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offerings you have not required. Now this is true of the Lord Jesus. And you may say, well, how in the world is that? You have given me an open ear. The way this is phrased, an open ear, it could be like this. Well, it was shut and something was bored through it in order to open it up. And it could be that you could now hear. And many times people find themselves in that position. I have found myself in a place where God had been obviously and very clearly saying these things and yet I've had an ear that was closed to Him. But God has a way of opening the ears of his people. He has the way. The Spirit of God can take the truth and open their ears. But it can also be said that this is an ear that has had a nail driven through it. Just like in the year of Jubilee, when a man was in debt in the Hebrew nation, he could work off his debt, but when the year of Jubilee would come by, that servant would be set free. His debt would be canceled. However, if that man chose and said, I love my master, I will serve him forever. They can drill a hole through his ear and like a nail driven through it. And that would be, he is going to be in this household forever. Now, I like both of those renderings. I like having my ears opened to the word of God, but I also like the idea That our Lord said, I am your servant forever. I have come to do your will. That is why I am here. And David said the very same thing. And that is why I say to you, should we not say the same thing? Have our ears drilled through and say, he is our master forever. We have come to do thy will. I am so glad that the Lord Jesus has come to do the will of the Father, that he died for our sins. But should we not now have the same heart, the heart of the man who died for us, that we might have the heart to live for God, that we might have the heart that says, now that my ears are opened to the truth, may I forever be his servant. May I always serve my God who died for me. And as we go through these, few verses from Psalm 40 please please remember that it is our Lord who saw himself being pulled from that pit and you say well when was our Lord ever in a pit oh my goodness having the sins of the world laid upon him when every man who surrounded him plotted to kill him who took every word that he ever spoke and twisted it and turned it into something evil To have everything purposely misunderstood about him. To have the virtue that was true and the kindness and compassion that was heartfelt spun around so that those who hated God could destroy him. And yet at this very event, the one, the adversary that was against him promised him that he could have All the kingdoms of the world, if he would just bow down and worship him. And yet he would not, he would rather go to the cross than do that. That is what we should do. This is why we have a messianic psalm that says, our Lord did that. And so, should we not do that? Should we not have the heart of Christ? Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we desire to have? That Christ who come and said. It is written in the scroll of the book. I have come to do your will. And would it not be a blessing. To all of his people. That we should rise up in the morning. With truth in our hearts. And say truthfully to God in prayer. If I could just do your will today. The love of doing right. The love of living. Under his smile. May we all have that heart the heart of Christ to be conformed to be sanctified to be like him knowing one day that he'll come back and save us from this present evil world he said I come and he did and he justified us and now we continue to say he's coming again now we're about to go into this Lord's table in which we say we are going to do this in remembrance of our Lord And we shall do this until he comes."